0: Preacher Fred Craddock knew of a church that had a beautifully decorated sanctuary on Easter morning. No offense to our volunteers, but it was even more amazing than ours this morning. The church's Easter to play was so amazing, in fact, it was the pride of the whole town. Everybody talked about the amazing things they did with the sanctuary on Easter morning. And the highlight of the sanctuary on Easter morning was 500 lilies. 500 lilies somehow fitted inside the chancel. Sometimes it was just a mass of lilies all over the place, and other times they actually put the lilies in the shape of a cross. Like ours, they were memorial lilies. People gave $5 for each flower, and the bulletin inserted list, insert listed 500 names, one for each lily. 500 lilies, $5 each, and every year. It was beautiful. In the 16th year, however, this beloved tradition fell apart. One of the members of the congregation, a woman, went up after the Easter service and said to one of the ushers who were cleaning up, excuse me, I'm going to the hospital to visit a friend, and I'd like to take one of the lilies to her. Can I go up there and grab one? The usher seemed a bit surprised and fumbled for an answer. And if you fumble for an answer in church, people take that as a yes. (laughs) So she went up to the chancel, up to the huge cross with 500 lilies, and took one. And as she held the lily, suddenly she turned to those still milling around in the sanctuary, and in a shocked voice shouted, They're plastic! (laughs) Well, there was much concern. Much concern, as you might imagine, in church life, not just over these being plastic lilies, the horror, but we gave $5 for these lilies. If they're plastic, they could be the same ones from last year. Well, being a Presbyterian church, committees were formed, official and unofficial. People huddled around the sanctuary in the coffee hour in the parking lot to talk about the plastic lilies. Someone, an accountant, actually came up with a figure over 15 years, they had collected $37,500 for plastic lilies. The minister, being a wise woman, gathered the concern together and tried to defend the practice of plastic lilies. They were carefully stored and covered, she argued. And they had indeed lasted for years. And they were beautiful. No one could deny that. And best of all, they didn't stink. His general, Her general defense was along two lines, really. The practical defense in response to what happened with the money To that, she said, we put the money in a contingency fund to help those in need, and I promise you, it's done amazing things. And then there were whispered and reluctant acceptance among some, but still rejection by others. Her other line of defense for the lilies was theological. She said, after all, and she said this with enthusiasm, after all, the plastic lilies are more appropriate for Easter Sunday because they always bloom. (laughs) Plastic lilies... Never, ever die. Most of us likely grew up believing the resurrection was a one-time miracle about Jesus, an anomaly that proves that Jesus is God's Son, the Chosen One. And if that is our understanding, then perhaps we should save some cash and reuse the same plastic lilies each and every year, but we can't. Plastic lilies just won't do. And they won't do because Jesus' resurrection is more than something that just happened long ago. His resurrection is a statement, a proclamation, about how life actually works. What if Jesus' resurrection is not so much a miracle that we have to believe or disbelieve? What if his resurrection is an invitation An invitation for us to look deeper into what is actually happening in life. Because what is happening in life each and every day is more amazing and beautiful than 500 plastic lilies could ever hope to symbolize. And what is happening over and over and over again, if we but look, is life coming out of the shadows of death. In the short story, Wait and See, the main character, Lyle, has tetrachromacy, which means that Lyle can see more colors than most people can see, millions more colors, to be exact. People keep telling Lyle that he's been given a great gift, that he can see all these colors, see more fully, more deeply, but that's not Lyle's experience. Seeing everything in full color feels more like a burden than a blessing to him. As the story reaches its conclusion, Lyle receives a gift from his stepfather, an optometrist who creates these special glasses that normalize Kyle's vision. After living with a while with them on, and then a while with them off, the Holy Spirit has come. Everybody okay? The wind? All right. Everybody good? All right. Christ is risen. Back to the story. (laughs) So Kyle, he tried wearing these glasses for a while so things were normalized, and he tried taking them off so he could see what life was really like. At the end of the story, Kyle puts the glasses on one last time, and this time he puts them on for good. He will never take the glasses off again, he declares. He will live in this world as an ordinary person. What if the choice before us this morning and every morning, what if the choice before us is that simple? To see life in its fullness, or to see it through lenses that limit what we can see and feel? I'm asking because today's story is really all about vision. It's all about perception. Did you notice that Luke's account of the resurrection provides almost no detail on how the resurrection actually happens. In fact, Jesus, the one we came to worship this morning, is nowhere to be found in today's story. We come to church on Easter to worship our risen Lord, and he's not even here, he's not even in the story. We, the gathered ones, we are the main characters of this resurrection story, not Jesus. We are the actors in today's drama. We are the ones curious enough about an idle tale to come and see for ourselves what all the fuss is actually about. Preacher and former college chaplain Will Willimon has recounted Several years ago, I had lunch with a college student who was singing in our church choir. He brought a friend with him to lunch, probably so he wouldn't have to have lunch alone with the minister. I mean, who wants to do that? I was introduced to him as a football player. This football player was a sophomore. As we made our way through lunch, he offered that he used to go to church as a kid, but wasn't in the mood for church right now. I hadn't brought up church at all. This was sort of a preemptive strike by him. I told him that was fine, perfectly fine, but I finally said, you seem pretty definite about this. Can I ask you why? Why? And he said, well, to tell you the truth, I'm kind of enjoying myself and my sophomore year. From what I remember of, of church and Jesus, you got to change. And I'm kind of happy with the way my life is right now. I smiled. So you're enjoying your sophomore slump, you're enjoying the partying and being on your own, and you don't want to risk that by coming to church. And he said, exactly. I'll probably come my senior year, but for now I've got some more stuff I want to do. I, you know, before I you know, have to rein it in a bit. And I responded, that, without a doubt, is the best reason I have ever heard for not coming to church. <laughs> he thought I was making fun of him. And I said, "No, no, don't misunderstand me. I meet a lot of people who tell me they don't want to come to church because it's boring or it's dull or it's irrelevant or because they've heard it all before, because they're just too busy. But you were telling me, you don't want to come to church because you don't want to risk getting changed or shaken out of where you are now. And he said, right. To this day, I have never heard a better reason for not coming to church. Christ is risen is more than a proclamation. It's more than a refrain we echo back and forth. Christ is risen is an invitation to see more hope and possibility in people and situations than others are willing to see. It's an invitation to look deeper into what is actually happening to all the people in all the places all around us. It's an invitation to change the way we see things. The women who came to the tomb and saw it empty first reacted with fear, which makes total sense. They'd come to pay their respects, and when they look inside the empty tomb, they see nothing. And they are afraid of the implications of what this means. And we all know that feeling. We know that fear that's in the air. We read the paper, and war and terrorism continue to take the lives of innocent people, mostly women and young children. Political, part- political partisanship here in this country is shaking the foundations of our democracy Fear of the other, whomever they might be, is growing, all the while the death toll for refugees is climbing. Countries are ramping up their military might, threatening and in some cases dropping the mother of all bombs. An opioid epidemic is growing in our own backyard as we struggle to accept how drug overdoses now take more American lives than gun violence and auto accidents combined. And then we read about devastating droughts in places that just can't handle devastating droughts. I mean, if we look at the world with limited vision, with those glasses on, we will have good reason to fear. But if we take a moment, if we pause to look deeper into the story, deeper into the ebbs and flows of life, that fear, I believe, will eventually give way to faith and in time to comprehension. Because we know, we know from personal experience and from the stories of our faith and the stories of other people, we know that death is not the primary narrative of life. We know that resurrection is. For every story of despair, there are hundreds of stories untold of resurrection. For every act of cruelty, there are countless acts of compassion each and every day. Every day, people roll away stones, rise up from the grave, and stare down death. We know all this, yet we struggle to see it. And we struggle to see it because we know to see it is to be changed. Trappist monk Thomas Merton had this vision that changed his life. It was 1958, and he was in Louisville, Kentucky, meeting with his publisher. Afterward, at the corner of 4th and Walnut Streets, as he walked through the shopping district of the city, Merton was suddenly overwhelmed by this realization that he loved everyone around him. They were mine and I was theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking, he said, from a dream of separateness. He saw the secret beauty in each person's heart. It was as if they were all walking around, he wrote, shining like the sun. If we could see each other that way all the time, There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. You know, whenever I have that kind of moment, and I don't have them enough, I'd like to have them more. Whenever I have that kind of moment when I feel connected to everyone, when you shine like the sun, a moment when I'm overwhelmed by beauty, by the beauty that lies in all people and all things, whenever I have that kind of moment, I'm always amazed by the setting I find myself in. I'm in a hospital room, or in a worship space, or in a mission field, or in a difficult conversation, or in the streets, or in the shadows of a failure, or in a conversation about a loved one lost. Whenever I see the beauty in all things, I'm standing at the edge of a tomb. And it's hard to stand at the edge of a tomb. Nobody wants to be there. In fact, we'd rather be, if we're honest, anywhere else. But it's there, at the edge, where some see death, that we see life in its fullness and its beauty. Columnist Bill McKenzie the Dallas News writes, A real hero is the one who never gives up on making meaning, even in the face of ugliness and ambiguity. She wakes up and loves and makes the toast and defends her friends. She is open to being overtaken by the beauty in ordinary things. She suspects, if you ask her, that any well-orchestrated search for meaning will fail. She knows that meaning rather comes to us. It surrounds us. It enfolds us. It claims us. Our goal, then, is to perceive it, not to find it. But perception, for whatever reason, is harder than it should be. So the question that currently frames my search for meaning is this. How might I, how might we, live more perceptively? And the best answer I have so far is to love this world more. To love this world more is Christ's call to all who stand at the edge of a tomb. And to love this world more, you have to be willing to see all of it, the good and the bad, the broken and the whole, the fragile and the strong. And the only way, in my experience, you can see all of it in full color without being overwhelmed by it all is to see it through the eyes of our risen Lord, Who sees beauty and wonder and potential in all things, even in death? To love this world more requires a willingness to see life as it is saturated, imbued, covered with God's beauty and God's love. Christ is risen. risen He is not here, He has gone ahead of us to help us see just how beautiful and amazing and wonderful all of life can be. Amen.